Feminine Radio, where we speak truth to patriarchal power, to predator capitalism, and have the courage to propose a new normal. Yes, a new normal, so the 99% of us can have a better quality of life. You know, there is an alternative to the patriarchal order, though the status quo prefers you not know it. It hasn't always been this way, and even if it has, it doesn't have to continue as it is. We don't need to be exploiting workers, the environment, humanity, and species on Mother Earth. We can have a world where women are equal and 70% of us don't retire in poverty. Well, I think most of my listeners and myself, well, we sort of believe uh, maybe an alternative is sacred feminine liberation theology, which we talk about here often, uh, namely the sacred feminine as deity, archetype, and ideal. And I've written a lot about that in my own books, Goddess Calling, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Sacred Places of Goddess, and uh, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth as we walk an ancient path. And so why do I tell you this at the opening of so many shows? Well, I think perhaps uh, this will all help you reimagine, revision, reawaken, and reinvent the lives we all deserve. Because as Arun Hadi Roy said, there's no such thing as the voiceless, only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And I don't think any of us want to be either. So I encourage everyone to find their sacred roar. Thank you for being with me again tonight. Uh, I know you have many choices out there, and uh, I I really appreciate the fact that so many of you come back week after week, and you are truly the gas in my tank. And thanks, too, to Celia uh, and uh, her music tonight. Uh, That cut was called Connected. Uh, Connected uh, to Mother Earth is the way I like to think about it, you know, connected to one another, uh, our interconnection, our wholeness, that web of being. But as we think about the earth, uh, I'm reminded of a few um, quotes of John Muir, and I want to thank one of my listeners, Pat, for sending these in. Uh, John uh, Muir has a couple beautiful quotes I want to share with you. Uh, The first, Uh, is from John of the Mountains, the unpublished journals of John Muir that date back to 1938. And he said, This grand show is eternal. It is always sunrise somewhere. The dew is never all dried at once. A shower is forever falling, vapor ever rising. 
eternal sunrise, eternal sunset, eternal dawn and gloaming on seas and continents and islands, each in its turn as the round earth rolls. And then there's another from his journals um, cited in Wilderness World of John Muir. And uh, I believe that was in a Sierra Club book. He says, there is a love of wild nature in every body, an ancient mother love, ever showing itself, whether recognized or no, and however covered by cares and duties. Nice. And you know, um, we are in the dog days of summer, and I wanted to share a little write-up from the Joseph Campbell Foundation talking about uh, the dog days on their Myth Blast that came out. Uh, The dog days of summer are upon us, long considered the hottest, muggiest time of the year. The dog days of summer is traditionally the time that Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, located in the constellation of Canis Major, the greater dog, rises and sets with the sun and so is hidden from view. In Egyptian mythology, this period begins with the solstice, which also marked the start of the Nile flood season that fructified the land. Sirius was considered the portal to the afterlife. And during this time, that doorway was closed, so the Egyptians delayed burying their dead until Sirius returned. In Greek mythology, Sirius, or the dog star, is the nose of Canis Major, identified as the dog of Orion the hunter, perpetually chasing Lepus the hare in the constellation at Orion's feet. The Greeks, Romans, and other ancients in the Mediterranean world believe that the warmth of Sirius as the brightest star combined with the sun to generate the sultry, barely bearable heat felt at the height of summer. And that was a belief first recorded by Hesiod in 700 B.C. According to John Brady, author of the Clavis Calendaria, or a compendious analysis of the calendar compiled in 1812, during this period, the sea boiled, the wine turned sour, dogs grew mad, and all other creatures became languid, causing to man, among other diseases, burning fevers, hysterics, and frenzies. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it has been hot here in California, unusually hot. And of course, we're going through our drought. Uh, usually, this time of year is um, oh, it's 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 much more enjoyable. You know, it's that envied Mediterranean type climate. But it has felt hot and sultry and steamy. Like I remember the days in New Orleans with the humidity. It just presses down on you. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed those references to our great Mother Earth and all her beauty and all her aspects. And uh, before we uh, turn our attention to our guest tonight, I want to uh, remind you of some important housekeeping. Uh, Even if you've hit the follow button on my show page before, please hit it again. 
seem some of the notifications, um, somehow a glitch in the system. I can't explain it. Anyway, some of the notifications were deleted, and you might not be getting notices before uh, the show as you once had. So if you want to stay connected to Voices of the Sacred Feminine and not miss the great shows each week or not rely on my emails uh, to remind you a show is coming up or not to rely on your memory, Uh, hit that follow button and you will get a reminder in your inbox and you can listen to a show at your convenience, uh, either live or later from the archives. Uh, Also, I want to say stay tuned in after tonight's interview. We're going to be talking about grace. What is grace? I'm going to give you an example of uh, what that might be. Uh, from the perspective of someone who wrote an article online, and uh, maybe you can uh, tell me about your experiences of grace. I'm also going to share with you some things to make you smile and some other things to make you think. And uh, did you know that the Goddess Temple of Orange County is opening its membership to awesome and aware men? Well, yes, it is. Yes. Men who want to stand side-by-side women as they lean in and lead. Men who want to be in partnership with women as their allies and understand the damage patriarchy has done all genders. Men who aren't afraid of women of substance who are working on empowering themselves and being the best that they can be. So if you're a guy and that sounds intriguing, you should check out the Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine, especially on fourth Sundays when the temple opens its doors to families and all genders. You can meet the many other men who lend their energy to creating community and growing the Goddess Temple of Orange County now in its 10th year. And this year, the temple is doing more than ever to lead the world toward goodness. Every week, because the members support it, the temple is open to the public and visitors from all over the world. And people come to experience the feeling of goddess and how it uplifts the spirit of humanity. You can take part in their Venus Hour every Friday afternoon from 5.30 to 7.30, where they have great discussions in the lounge over lovely libations. This is really a sacred space that exists only in a few rare places now. You know, the temple and the priestesses have supported me and my husband, Roy, for the past decade. Uh, We have learned from them and are strengthened by the Goddess Temple, and we want that for other good women and aware and evolved men. And as a member of the community, we'd love for you to visit the temple some Venus Hour or maybe on a Joseph Campbell Roundtable or a fourth Sunday. Perhaps you can even meet us there and say hello, and we'd be happy to show you around and introduce you to the other gentlemen of the temple, and that way you can be a part of the life-affirming community there. The temple is also opening their membership to um, to women uh, because they are dedicated to empowering women to lead the world to goodness. So, um, about tonight's show, uh, I am so happy to have with me tonight uh, Janet Surrey. And uh, Janet um, is a Buddhist Dharma leader and clinical psychologist, internationally known for her work on relational theories of women's psychological development, on also on diversity, mothering, adoption, and substance abuse. Among other venues, uh, Janet has taught at uh, Harvard Medical School and the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies. She's the author of several books, and she currently divides her time between Boston and Tierra Tranquila in Costa Mesa. 
And we are talking to her tonight uh, about a book she's written, I think in conjunction with her husband, called The Buddha's, uh, the Buddha's Wife. And I wonder if you even realize the, Buddhist, the Buddha had a wife. So uh, tonight we're going to learn about the princess, princess Yasodhara and why her story matters in the 21st century. Uh, maybe uh, you'll uh, hear this and uh, hear how this demystification of the Buddha's sacred myth and how Yasodhara's story represents the inequality still present in many traditional religions and faiths. So, Janet, um, thank you for being with me tonight, and welcome to Thanks the show. Thanks for inviting me, Karen. Very happy to be here and feel like I'm in the right place for this book. <laughs> I think you probably are. Um, so, the untold story of the Buddha's wife. Um, first of all, enlighten us. I mean, I, I I don't know a lot about Buddhism. I will be the first to admit I've always thought of it as a very patriarchal religion, maybe even one that, you know, taught people to embrace suffering, you know, to accept their lot in life uh, rather than, um, you know, maybe find their sacred roar and make things better. So uh, I, I, I admit wholeheartedly, you know, I need an education when it comes to Buddhism, but especially mm-hmm. I didn't even know the Buddha had a wife, and apparently right. her name is Yasodhara. Yasodhara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... I mean, there probably was a historical Buddha lived 2,600 years ago, uh, but the the mythology around his story is, um, I'm sure, somewhat created in a patriarchal uh, structure to uh, really, we don't really know the details. And very, very, even less is known about his wife and the family he left behind. But the Buddha, I have been a Buddhist for a long time, and uh, I found that the meditative practice um, has been really quite exquisite. Um, But I also have other uh, forms of spirituality in my life, um, particularly uh, with women and um, with community, with much more of a relational uh, way of being. So for me, this is... um, taking the Buddhist story and really understanding it at a, at a deep level by focusing on the, the wife and the family he left behind. The story is that the Buddha left his wife on the night of his first and only son's birth uh, without saying goodbye uh, in order to seek enlightenment. And her, his first step was to leave home, to leave relationships, to leave family and community and to focus on the internal world and to face the suffering of life in a way that led to an, a full awakening seven years later under the Bodhi tree. You, we're all familiar with that picture of the Buddha sitting in peace under the tree alone. Uh, the celebration in the Buddhist world, which has been, as you say, very patriarchal and monastic tradition, um, it, his leaving is called the great going forth. And uh, it's his story then, what happens as he faces internal psychological suffering and finds uh, enlightenment. But I've so always felt, what about his wife? What yeah, happened? I mean, she because woke it up sounds, and found him sounds, gone. Sounds rather irresponsible on his part. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I'm not, we're not... Uh, 
you know, I think it's a patriarchal story for a man that he that was he could either become a warrior or a holy man. So he didn't have many options really either. But that's another story. We're focusing on her and this uh I became fascinated with uh what happened and to her there are about five things mentioned in the early texts about her. One that she had a son um, that she was very uh, depressed and in grief when she was abandoned, that uh, the Buddha came back home seven years later, no longer Siddhartha, but now the awakened being who was no longer her husband, no longer the person he was. He was fully enlightened. He, um, she encouraged her son to seek his inheritance, whatever that meant, the son became a monk, and his father took him off. Later on, the women in the uh, palace community asked the Buddha if they could go forth and become nuns in his community. Twice the Buddha said no. And the third time, uh, they were asking. The women, in resistance, shaved their heads and left home, say in the Buddhist tradition, they went homeless into the holy life together. So there are two different images. I was very taken with how did she move in her life from being an abandoned, grieving wife and single mother to a member of a community that resist, was resisted the Buddha's no and together shaved their heads and dared to go forth together, not alone. And in our story... This is the story of her spiritual awakening in relationship, not alone, not out in the desert um, speaking to God, but turning into relationship. And that that path, the, the subtitle of the book is The Path of Awakening Together. And we feel that that's the split in the path, that the patriarchal story of the Buddha awakening alone uh, that her story represents the new feminine and the relational path. Um, that yeah, is because, just you know, we, equally we talk about the sacred path. feminine, and, you know, the sacred mm-hmm. feminine is more about interconnection Friends, and relation, where the patriarchy yeah. is more about um, yeah. separation and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, sort of being yeah. self-centered. Well, alone, supreme individual, isolation, solitude and a and a relationship with a higher power or the universe but not through so the buddha when he comes home in our story she says to him dear one this is the epigram of this book what might be of benefit what teachings and practices offered had two or more sat together under the bodhi tree so we're introducing this new icon rather than the Buddha alone mm-hmm. under the tree of mm-hmm. others, of sitting together, awakening together. And, and awakening that's really community. the story of the book, the path of awakening together. And we think it's the split of the in the path that needs to be healed in the Buddhist world and in many of the religions of our uh, that we've all inherited. So yes. I think it's very much in alignment with um, what you were offering 
in the beginning yeah. of the show. Yeah. Yeah, I mean because you know we're talking about um you know solidarity instead of polarity. You know, we're talking about, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder uh to make the world uh a better place, you know, and and that takes um you know, that takes loyalty and commitment and dedication and uh, you know, people standing together as one, you know, shoulder to shoulder instead of, you know, having wedge issues and petty differences and, um, you know, everybody striving for the big picture rather than, um, you know, crumbling in separation over um, minor things that, you know, don't amount to, to a hill of beans, you know. Um, well, I, I'm... In our know, story... I, um Rather than meeting suffering internally, the the Buddha's wife cries out and the Buddha's mother comes to her. So in this story, it's all about what the human relationship, that suffering can be met with compassion in relationship and that we both, we all have a vulnerability and we all have an incredible power to show up for each other. And it's in that showing up and that deep connectedness that healing and awakening begins to happen in our story. And the women then form a circle. Uh, We call it the circle of compassion. It's a circle that holds all of them and holds all the suffering as well as the joy. And this becomes the vehicle a spiritual community that allows uh, Yasodhara to survive and to begin to become uh, spiritually awakened and to be a beneficial presence to others in the community as well. So the circle of compassion becomes the vehicle of awakening. Okay. So now uh, Yasodhara is, um, I, I, I believe I you know read from your material, she, she was actually a princess, so she... Mm-hmm. Uh, so she must have had uh, some sort of uh, an entourage or something in the, the temple com- compound or something, I would imagine. Was mm-hmm. that uh, the the women that she drew to her, you know, the women of the court, so to speak? It was the, her mother, uh, the mother-in-law. It was the women, all of the women at every level, including lower caste servants. Uh, in the circle, uh, of course, they, the women are all equal. A circle is a perfect relational formation. Everyone is equally distant from the center. There's no one above or below. It's a mm-hmm. great equalizer. It, mm-hmm. And the women sat on, in the story, they sit uh, in a gre- grove, a beautiful fir grove tre- of trees, They believe their circle and the power of the circle comes from the earth and the trees as well as from each other. So they discover a circle, and as we all know, this ancient circle has really been a fundamental aspect of women's spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect relational formation. Um, So where does what we really know about her and author creative license you know where where does the where, where do the two come together? I mean, um, were there were there just shreds of 
Yeah. I, I mean, and look, don't get As me I wrong said, when, I, when I ask that question mentions. because you know one of the things that I talk about is we need to cre- we we need to take it upon ourselves to write new mythology, to write that's, new stories that yes. that put women you know in leadership, that put women at the center. But but just from a historical standpoint, you know, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, how much did we, you know, what is you know, is is there any fact? And then, of course, the beautiful you know creative license that that you take as a writer to embellish mm-hmm. the mythology so that it can be relevant right. for us today. Right. This is exactly. We decided that um, it would be the book is in two parts. The first 125 pages is a historical fiction based on the five references in the early Buddhist suttas, the teachings, the books of the teachings of the Buddha, which, of course, it was so ancient, they were not written down till over 100 years after he died. So there's a great... It's hard to know what was actually spoken. The oral tradition, the monks kept alive the teachings. There were thousands of teachings. It's kind of a miracle that anything survived. So... It was from those books and the few mentions of Yasodhara and her son and his mother and father. Uh, We put together a a modern fiction, and we have Yasodhara telling her story at the deathbed of her mother-in-law in the nuns' quarters among the women. Um, It's her story, and she's telling it um, in the first person. Um, the second part of the book is a reader's commentary for modern times. What can we women now in this time uh, take from this story? How is this story actually evol- really reflecting a path of women's spirituality and new forms of relational spirituality that are coming forth in the world, which is exactly what this world needs Um, just what you were saying in terms of healing the splits of um, patriarchy and of power dynamics, of injustice, of separation and the pain of suffering and division and hatred um, and into a new form of circle that is inclusive of all beings. Um, And we believe that women need to take the leadership in creating that new path. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Now, you believe that our story demystifies the sacred myth of the Buddha. Um, Is is that a controversial thing, and how does it demystify him? Is it because he sort of abandons the family and people look at it from that perspective? I mean, I think it makes him into a human being. I'm not sure. I I think that's a good thing. I think the humanness is something that helps all of us really uh, understand our own vulnerability and our own sacred power of what's mm-hmm. possible. Well, but, you know, there's so I don't a lot think of demystification that... is a problem. I think some people might think it is. <laughs> but, well, you know, you know we, one of the things we imagined was they're reconnecting after seven years. What was it like to see him again? And writing that scene when he comes home, no longer her husband, and she's trying to figure out who he is, and and we actually have the Buddha make an amends to her 
in our story because quote even a buddha needs to know how to make amends mm-hmm. we believe that we this is a relational practice of is learning we all need to make know when and how to make amends even if right. we haven't meant to hurt so he made well that gave me a lot of pleasure um having him make amends <laughs> Well, um, and you know, going back to the idea of demystifying the Buddha, um, uh-huh. you know, and and maybe he, you know, and, and the fact that he had a family and children, and um, you know, he sort of leaves them to go do his own thing, um, you know, and, and and you said that you thought, well, that was a good thing in a way to show the human side of him. I we could yeah. probably say the same thing about the people who look at Jesus and Mary Magdalene as the sacred mm-hmm. couple. You know, right. rather than Jesus, who you know, raise you know, rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. You know, here you have a man who uh, had a had a wife and a child, uh, and you know, that sort of um, you know makes him you know more human to us. I I know the goddess Isis, for instance. You know, one of the reasons. Um, they believe that she was so popular across cultures and continents was because of her accessibility. The idea that, uh, and, and and also the idea that she could understand human suffering because so much of her myth is not unlike um, you know things that people endure. So you know maybe that's a you know maybe that's a pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, throw that out there. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think so. So have did, but because uh, you know he's not you know totally on a pedestal, and he even has to uh, you know make amends to his wife. Uh, you know when he you know finally shows up seven years later. Um, you know, have you encountered any sort of a, a, a objection or pushback to your to your story uh, about uh, the Buddha and Yasodhara? I think there's a certain hesitation and worry. I think if you read this book, you see that we have we have maintained great respect and regard and appreciation for this the Buddha's teaching. Um, I don't think his story is um, you know who knows what was historically true or not. It is a mythology. It's a patriarchal story of the man who go the great hero who seeks uh, the alone to face the wilderness and then comes back a great teacher and sits above everyone, the awakened one. So that's a very patriarchal story. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's probably a mythological story as well. So mm-hmm. we felt we have every right to um, write the other side of the story um, mm-hmm. and elevate that rather than diminish him. Right. I think it's about elevating the feminine, right. uh, honoring right. and appreciating the not only that there has been and is this spiritual path, but it's it's so important that it be brought forth today in our world. So that, how did that, you reconcile? Uh, how did how did you reconcile the fact that okay, this is a story you know within the construct of Buddhism, a patriarchal mm-hmm. religion, how did you uh, reconcile the inequalities that women face um, within Buddhism with this story? I mean, 
aside, you know, I mean, obviously the women are coming together and, you know, they create this circle of compassion, but mm-hmm. what other injustices or inequalities may be within the, you know, the Buddhism do they address and try to, um, you know, br- bring, you know, more harmony or balance or justice to? Well. In the in the story we just finished, they um, as I said, they their circle they form the circle, um, and they uh, at some point are called by another community in trouble. They go forth together in service to the other. Uh, they bring their circle to the other women in this other community, so they have the opportunity to help create peace building justice building circles um to and then the next thing after they do that they are strengthened as a community to resist the no from the buddha when he they say they want to come join the order he says no and you know they take it in their own hands to shave their heads and show up anyway and say here we are so it was an act of resistance Mm um the in the in the commentary suggests now, you know, what are the lessons from this path that we can take? And I think um, one of the, uh, if you if you look at the um, Reader's Companion, the first part of the book is about creating circles in our lives for all kinds of things, for for ourselves and others, that what can be born together can not be necessarily be born alone that we need each other to hold um, the suffering or the grieving. Um, You see this in many, many um, clinical healing circles or um, in the 12-step programs. This circle grows. Uh, It's not uh, limited. It's, It's increasingly inclusive. Its power grows with everyone who joins. Mm-hmm. And the the second part of the book is uh, another aspect of women's spirituality is called the path of devotion, accompanying others through life from birth to death, the circle of life, and that women often are walking a path of devotion within relationships, whether it's as mothers or friends or daughters, that our lives are shaped often relationally. And this book makes the sacred devotional practice of being with others um, as part of women's spirituality. How does this path become a sacred path, the mm-hmm. path of relation? And really one of the fundamental, the, the third part is really looking at in our lives how we accompany others as parents or healers where we bring forth the new or in mutual relationships, spiritual friendship being kind of the fundamental practice mm-hmm. of uh, our lives. What is this intentional spiritual practice? What kind of vows and commitments do we need to make to those spiritual friends in our lives? Mm-hmm. Um, couples as spiritual partners. And um, finally, accompanying others through illness, old age, and death that many women lives are shaped by their commitment to walk with others and through illness, through age, and through death. Yeah, 
as caretakers. And that's how yeah. can this become a sacred spiritual path? Mm-hmm. That's what the second part of the book is all about. So in our lives, how can we take these relationships and that can become oppressive? Um, what Under what conditions can they become liberating and uh, a, a medium of awakening, spiritual mm-hmm. awakening? That's yeah, the because you know, women find the themselves in those situations, I think, more so than men. You mm-hmm. know, they're usually the ones you know, taking care usually. of yeah. the aging parents and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and, and that can be with, very difficult. With partners often who are, yeah, more loyal. And this, uh, I was very struck by how mothers really are taking a sacred devotional vow to really stay present for children for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing. It's not to a guru. It's not to um, a great teacher. You know, it's to children. It's mm-hmm. it's a beautiful human path, right? And mm-hmm. um, in in the book we're talking about lifting this, really honoring it as a sacred path, and then looking at what conditions can help make this an awakening rather than uh, an oppressive practice caregiving. Yeah, so I mean, would you would you sort of in a nutshell say it's about elevating relationship to the level of sacred, whatever yes. that relationship yes, is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the devotion and the practice. It's a practice. It's a relational these are practices just like we have meditation practice, spiritual practices relationships can be spiritual practices. Okay. And now you wrote this book uh with your husband. Um mm-hmm. how how was how was that? Um <laughs> you know, writing well, cuz I mean me, Yeah, it's he um we've done a lot of work together. We wrote a play about the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, the relationship of the two men who founded it. We did a play. We have done gender dialogue work for years. We wrote a book called "We Have to Talk: Healing Dialogues Between Women and Men." So we've done a lot of work together and have written together. This was pretty hard to write. He, he really, you know. So when we write um, different things, one of us is more the expert. Or this was definitely woman's voice in this mm-hmm. uh, book, and he really. Um, says he was the second author in support of uh-huh. this. Um, he has a deep appreciation for this women's voices and ways and spirituality. So um, he, uh, and it's still, it's always very hard to write together. It's sure. Because yeah, you're absolutely. trying to get both voices and every sentence has to be agreed on in some way. <laughs> See, I don't think I could do it. (laughs) Yeah, different sensibilities, different humor, different ways of expressing ourselves. So it's quite a um, feat to to put something together. But he's more of a novelist and a Mm -hmm. creative writer, so he kind of took the lead in the first part of where we're telling her story. It's beautifully written. And the second part, I'm more the nonfiction person, so Mm -hmm. I was kind of writing... The, more the first author on the commentary and uh, relevance for our modern lives with reflections and spiritual practices that the book is full of. So, um, you know, we there was a nat- somewhat of a natural split between us. 
Right. But um, it was hard. It's always hard. But I, I feel like the message of the book is what I call becoming a relational activist in your life, which mm-hmm. is really turning toward connection and keeping on with the vision that we can stay connected, we can have strong connections, relationships that empower all of us. We've all had lots of terrible experiences, deadening experiences, you know, losses, disconnections, Mm -hmm. horrible crises. But the vision of what's possible if we hold together and learn to do that and practice together is this is where our strengths can be. This is where we can change the world. Right. And no, unless I, we I agree. You know, uh, so often, you know, we well, we talk about this in different aspects, and maybe mm-hmm. we use different language depending on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've interviewed you know Phyllis Chesler about uh, about a number of things. But one of the things that pops out for me because I can so relate to it is you know, woman's inhumanity to woman. You know, imagine if we could get women uh, to uh, treat each other better. You know, uh, yeah. we could change the world uh, in an instant. If I uh, think you know, this is part of the the path of really honoring the feminine. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Janet, uh, I I love what you've done with this, and uh, especially this idea. I mean, you're you're. Uh, you're you're doing one of the things that I'm going to go to the Parliament of World Religions and talk about in uh, in October about you know women having the courage to write the new mythology to reshape You've the got world it. and this is it yep this is it. Um, so um, is there anything you wanted to say about the book that maybe I haven't thought to ask you? Well, as I said, we, we write about becoming a relational activist. and be, do, you, do you know Joanna Macy's work on the great turning? Um, uh, talk, the evolutionary so. step that um, we are needing to take as a species toward a very mm-hmm. different way of being. I mean, people are talking about that in many, many ways towards yeah. a more mutual, a more earth-centered, a more, you know, less profit motive, less hierarchical, Mm -hmm. the partnership Mm -hmm. model. And um, this great turning is uh, this book on the Buddha's wife, The Path of Awakening Together, suggests ways of really turning towards connection where our strength is and where we can really make change and that we need to change our idea of spiritual awakening as something that happens to one person alone, the great one, to the we, to the circle, to the community, to going forth together, to awakening together, to creating awakening communities that are not, it's not about individuals, it's creating spiritually awakening communities mm-hmm. that are awakening to our true connectedness. Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of reminds me of that old that old Christian saying. I mean, I tend to reject Christianity. I'm a I'm a recovering Catholic, but that idea of we are our brother's keeper. You know, this idea that we have responsibilities toward one another. That, absolutely. You know, we and should be caring and sharing the the relationship together. It's a that we are responsible for the strength of our community, our relationships, our families. Um, and we need. There's a lot more to learn about how to do that. That we and that women really need to lead the way to do that. So well, becoming maybe, a relational um, before activist. Before we close, whether, 
mm-hmm. uh, before we close, Janet, yeah. could you maybe give one or two examples uh, that can help us usher in that, uh, you know, this great turning? Mm-hmm. I just want to say one thing, yeah, before that. The Buddha, the, the last words of the Buddha are supposedly um, be, make of yourself a light, make, uh, seek your own salvation with diligence. And the last words of Yasodhara are, um, sometimes you need to be a light for others. Sometimes you need others to light the way for you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the dark night of the soul, we all need to find our way alone. But always the light burns more brightly when two or more are gathered. Mm. Those are her That's lives. lovely. Yeah. So, um, maybe just a couple quick examples of uh, helping this paradigm shift manifest. Mm-hmm. Well, for for example, I was talking about um, the devotional practice of mothers. Um, this really, the book gives a lot of examples of how what what um, how mothers can really band together and how um, create circles with each other that really honor the practice where women make the vow in public. I'm very into vows. Another thing of spiritual friends, there's a long chapter on how to create a spiritual friendship, uh, Mm -hmm. intentional friendship by creating a certain structure, to the relationship, a certain spiritual ritual in the relationship where each of you um, creates an I am space of listening deeply. One of the practices of relational relational practice is listen deeply, speak the truth, and that that's a relational practice. We, get li- we hear each other into truth and power, mm-hmm. and that truth, creates great listening deeply where we lose listening so deeply we lose the separation so speaking and listening can become spiritual practices and that's one of the aspects of spiritual friendship okay well janet um very interesting stuff and uh obviously very important work uh certainly in alignment with uh what we call sacred feminine liberation theology mm-hmm. um Absolutely. Won- wonderful wonderful stuff um and I would imagine your book can be found in all the usual places or it's in a- yeah can i it's the website the buddha's wife book dot com you can look up The Buddha's Wife, The Path of Awakening, and uh, there are many places to buy the book. We have a great Facebook page and community going, The Buddha's Wife, The Path of Awakening Together. So there are many ways to access this and to get the book and to create a, we, we suggest a group reading it together um, to do some of the practices and um, to walk the walk of Yasodhara to keep her spirit alive, to bring it back to the world today, and to support all of us in our spiritual, relational um, growth and awakening. Liberation. You, you may start a movement here with this. A I new would love that. Within Buddhism. <laughs> I would love that. It's the missing, we call it the split in the path that needs to be healed. Yep. Right, right, yep. absolutely. 
Well, Janet, thank you, uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing tonight. Uh, you know these these um, wise ideas and insights uh, certainly uh, so so needed to um, you know get us all vibrating on a higher level and uh, raising awareness uh, across the planet so that uh, you know we can actually become a, a species uh, you know worthwhile. You know. Um, so, uh, so thank you so much for your work. Well, thank and, uh, you for being so much on the for show. your show, Karen. Yep. Okay, you're welcome, and and good night, and and good luck with the book. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. And now a word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. I mean, I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connections between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, the goddess as Gaia. It features 15 other visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just 20 bucks. And you can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com. You know, this theme uh, keeps coming up over and over and over again, doesn't it? Relationship, interconnection, partnership. That is the way of the future. That is the way of sacred feminine liberation theology. You know, I wanted to uh, share a few things with you, um, but first... uh, let me just ask you, um, do you feel like the world has gotten crazy? Um, you know, it's it's truly nuts out there every day in the media and Facebook and just out there more and more. Uh, it seems clear that women of goddess spirituality, women holding the spirit of the good of all and leadership are so very needed by humanity. You know, with crazy violent movies celebrating machismo, death, and suffering, with one in five females raped on campus, with the focus on ever thinner and younger women models and magazines, with young teenage girls being pressured uh, to have sex and told astonishingly that maybe the act isn't even sex. You know, with all this insanity, it is more important now than ever before to have a goddess temple. You know, I've been a member of the Goddess Temple of Orange County for a decade, and um, I wanted you to know, um, as I said at the top of the show about, um, you know, membership for men, that uh, this year the temple is doing more than ever to empower women to lead the world to goodness. And every week, uh, as I said before, you know, they have Venus Hour, they have services, um you know, it, it is a sacred space there that exists only in a few rare places, and holding this space is so very important. And um, 
you know, Sunday services are every Sunday without fail for over a decade. You know, that's over 520 unique messages of empowerment uh, to women that have been held there at the Goddess Temple, uh, helping women to feel the power of goddess, how it can change our dominator model, uh, a patriarchally driven world. You know, uh, offering ideas, uh, you know, for the change that's so desperately needed. You know, at the temple they teach all is one, all is sacred, all is eternal. And they teach reverence for life. They teach that woman is meant to be queen, the ancient natural spiritual authority for the world. And their women's rituals are known all over the world as being some of the most strengthening and enlivening ceremonies that women have ever attended. Life-changing is a word that uh, women often use. So anyway, uh, just as I said before, how the temple and the priestesses have supported Roy and I together, they've also supported me as a woman. You know, I I have to say that uh, there was a time in my life when, you know, I was afraid of my own voice, um, honestly. You know, I was afraid to step up and call a corner or speak out and, um, you know, and step up, you know, maybe it's because I had, you know, been with a group who was, you know, very judgmental and it was all about performance, you know, rather than intention. But at the Goddess Temple, it's a very nurturing, loving, affirming atmosphere. And I, I think so many women and men can benefit from that, uh, you know, benefit from this uh, you know this this idea uh really that uh, Janet was talking about you know this this sacred connection this uh you know dedication to community and one another and helping us all uh lead a better life and be the best that we can be and I think when you become a member of the goddess temple that that's uh the opportunity you have to be a, a part of that and you know and even if you aren't within driving distance of the temple um you know you can still consider becoming a member like you would uh, when you join the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or Emily's List or something like that. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, check out the Goddess Temple of Orange County online or email me and I can tell you more. Or, you know, if you ever want to meet me there some weekend and, uh, you know, I'd be happy to show you around and introduce you to the people there that I know. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for a community, uh, that would be a good place to start. So that said, um, I wanted to share something a little light and funny that uh, crossed uh, my Facebook page. You might have already seen this before, but uh, I think it's worth repeating. It's a fun thing. Uh, It says, uh, an English professor wrote the words, quote, a woman without her man is nothing unquote, on the chalkboard, and then asked his students to punctuate it correctly. Okay, so the the, the phrase was, a woman without her man is nothing. Now, all of the males in the class used punctuation, and the sentence came out like this, a woman without her man is nothing. And then when the females in the class wrote the same phrase with their punctuation, it came out like this, a woman without her Man is nothing. And it just goes to show how punctuation is so powerful. Isn't that interesting? A woman, without her, man is nothing. Well, certainly, without her, man would not be born, (laughs) at the very least. 
And did you know that only 12% of girls and women have access to sanitary products around the world? And in Africa, 1 in 10 girls actually miss school when they have their period because of that. Now stop and think about that for a minute. You know, um, I don't think I'd, I really have. I know I did a story once on a, a gentleman in India who discovered how to um, make um, sanitary pads and he started distributing them in, you know, in his local area for women. And that was the first tip-off I had that this problem actually existed. But, you know, it, it's, it's pretty incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? You know, the things we just take for granted, and, and when, in fact, only 12% of girls and women across the globe have access to sanitary products. Wow. That's... Uh, that's pretty incredible. We have to do something about that, and um, there are ways to look into it. So um, a little bit ago, I uh, told you that uh, I wanted to talk about the idea of what is grace. And, um, you know, I've I've been thinking about this a good bit. Um, what is grace? And one of the reasons I was thinking about it was because uh, I was invited to take part in a survey. Uh, A woman was doing uh, a survey in her thesis on women who felt like they had received divine grace. And I, I, I believe I've had some very interesting experiences, so I thought I maybe had some things to offer the survey and then the follow-up interview. You know, times when you feel like you have been in the flow, um, in the zone, you know, connected, you know, to that higher power, whatever it is, whether it's your divine self or... Uh, you know, the divine power out there, the sea of being, whatever we want to call it. It's hard to know exactly what it is. And um, and I, what was interesting um, in talking to this woman who was doing the survey and the follow-up interview was that she was having difficulty finding Christian women who could talk about having received divine grace. And in our conversation I asked her, I wonder, I wonder if that's because either it's hard to know what grace is, you know, what is the definition of grace? It might be different things to different people. But I also wonder if it's because patriarchal religions have beat down women so badly that unconsciously so many of them think they're second-class citizens. Why would they be worthy of receiving divine grace. I mean, maybe they believe that down deep in their gut. You know, maybe it's not something they can language, but maybe it's something they believe in their heart of heart, you know, that maybe somehow they're not worthy because, after all, their religion teaches them that they're second class. And don't forget, in so many of these patriarchal religions, you know, it's the man that stands at the front of the room that is the teacher, that is the leader, that is the wise uh, the wise person, the elder, the prophet, the one who channels the uh, divine message and disseminates it among uh, the congregation. So, you know, if you think you need an intermediary between yourself and the divine, then why would you receive divine grace, you know? 
so anyway, um, that's sort of been, you know, rattling around in my in my brain. And um, then a friend of mine wrote me an email and said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to become an atheist. I am just sick and tired of my prayers not being answered um, or I'm tired of so many friends I know in poverty or struggling and you know i don't i don't know that there's anything out there how you know how do we know that there's anything out there that cares about us are we just wasting our time burning our incense and lighting our candles and making our prayers and all of this and you know he was sort of in a depressed place and we talked about that for a little while and you know how do we get a sign that you know there is something greater than us than than us out there that uh we aren't really just you know all alone and um and and so right about the and actually I have to say the very same day he and I had that conversation and I was you know trying to uh, have him you know find you know not lose hope um an article crossed my email and I sent it to him after I read it right away. And uh, it was actually from a website called The Thrive Movement, which, to be honest with you, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about. I don't know whether I'm in alignment with its thoughts or not. I may very well be, maybe not. I don't know. But the article that came across was by a woman by the name of Kimberly Carter Gamble. And, of course, here was the the idea that we were just talking about, uh, you know, in the title of her article, What is Grace? What is Grace? You know, and... Um, and I, I so enjoyed this article because this woman wrote about the fact that in the 90s um, she was she felt so bad that there were so many teens on the street in her local town. There were no youth shelters. It was difficult for women in uh, shelters uh, if they had older boys because the shelters didn't allow uh, women to have their teenage sons with them. And, uh, you know, it created a problem for these women who were abused and homeless. And uh, so she thought that uh, maybe the thing to do was uh, to organize and fundraise and find a facility where uh, they could meet the needs of the community. You know, long-term housing, drug treatment, job training, anger management, money management, spiritual support, counseling, all of those different things. And the pieces were coming together until it came time to actually find a brick-and-mortar space. And while everybody thought it was a great idea, nobody wanted it in their neighborhood. In fact, they were so against it, you know, she was finding herself getting hit with lawsuits and ugly stuff like that to the point where she was starting to doubt if this was really something that she should do. You know, was this just her idea was this about her ego was this about her vision or was this part of a bigger scheme a bigger plan you know had she was she being was she really being guided to do something that needed to be done and she was doubting herself and so she literally put it out there she said you know uh you know whatever she called divinity she said i need a sign i need to know that what i am trying to do with this you know shelter for homeless and women and children that this um you know this is really something 
that needs to be done and that this is just not about me. Because you know what? If you give me a sign that this is something that really needs to be done, I will I will move mountains to make it happen. In spite of these lawsuits, in spite of the resistance, I will do everything in my power to make it happen. But if I don't have the sign, you know, I am going to just, um, you know, maybe just, uh, let it all go because maybe this is just about my ego and maybe this is just about me and my idea and it's not really part of some bigger scheme you know um you know some some bigger cosmic plan so she went out on a walk and she walked all around her town and she walked here and she walked there and she walked here and she walked there and you know she had she she had opened herself you know she was she was looking for that sign and a few hours later, she was discouraged and, you know, walking back home and, and nothing, you know, no signs. No signs had happened. And um, she was starting to think, well, you know, maybe um, I'm pushing this boulder uphill for nothing. Maybe uh, this is just, you know, all something that was birthed in my own head and it's not part of some bigger, you know, cosmic um, you know, plan about, you know, relationship and partnership and caring about one another. And and then um, some kids came up to her and they said, hey, lady, do you know where there's a shelter in town? Well, there was her sign. There was the divine grace. There was her answer. And that was the turning point for her. Um, she took the kids out to dinner, and they talked, and they became instrumental in helping her uh, create this, um, uh, you know, this this house where they could, you know, uh, provide a school and shelter and counseling and all of these things that, you know, folks that are down on their luck um, need to help them get back on their feet and. Um, you know that nurturing and that support and that uh, that guidance that we all need, you know, at some point in our life. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I think oftentimes when we talk about uh, do we are, are we getting a divine message, or we uh, do we know if uh, there's something out there? It is is God got us the divine source or are they listening to our prayers do they it really intercede in our life you know are we just deluding ourselves you know i think sometimes we think maybe you know that divine grace comes in the form of an apparition you know or maybe a miracle well you know maybe it's how we def- we define miracles or epiphanies or um uh, you know apparitions even you know these kids appearing before this woman wasn't that in a sense wasn't that a miracle wasn't that an epiphany wasn't that um an apparition in a sense you know that these that these kids showed up in front of this particular woman who had as her calling creating that sort of a space that they came to her what are the odds of that? Look at that serendipity. You know, that's grace. So sometimes I think things happen in our life and we don't always realize just how profound they are. We write them off as the mundane and maybe they really aren't. 
So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. And, you know, if you've read a couple of my books, I, I think, you know, especially Walking an Ancient Path, where I talk more in that book about, you know, things that I've experienced in life that, um, you know, maybe fall under this category. Sometimes I sort of put them under the heading of the esoteric because it's hard to explain how they happen, like something that I lost, you know, suddenly manifested, you know, on my altar. Um, sounds like, you know, sounds like crazy batshit stuff, you know, stuff that I probably wouldn't sometimes even believe if somebody told me, but it happens, you know, and when you have these sorts of things happen to you, um, it's hard to deny divine grace, you know, and it doesn't have to be huge and profound, you know, it really doesn't. Um, so anyway, uh, if you want to know a little bit more about some of those stories of mine, email me, you know, maybe I'll read a chapter in my book or some excerpts from one of my books if you're interested, or maybe just pick up for yourself uh, Walking an Ancient Path, um, you know, where I talk about some of these stories. And, you know, I, I, I feel like in a way I kind of, you know, stuck my neck out telling some of these stories, you know, because, uh, you know, some people might think, um, you know, I'm a little bit nutty, you know, that I that these things happen. But, you know, you can't deny things sometimes. If they happen, they happen. And, you know, sometimes there's no uh, explanation other than, um, you know, one that points to the esoteric or divine grace or dare we call it a miracle. Yeah. Well, um, that about does it for tonight, uh, my dear listeners. Um, I will not be with you next week uh, because I am taking a much-needed vacation for a little for a little break. Uh, but I will be with you the second Wednesday um, in August. Uh, but there is lots and lots of stuff uh, in the archives. I'm sure there are things there that uh, that you haven't actually listened to yet. Um, take a look. Uh, just last week, I spoke to Marilyn McFarlane about uh, diversity and, uh, you know, uh, welcoming common ground. Uh, I shared uh, in, you know, one night, um, I have the audio uh, of a talk that I gave at uh, Unitarian Church in Canoga Park, uh, saluting the sun goddesses Amaterasu and Sekhmet, and talked about the archetype of fire and how this all is part of sacred feminine liberation theology and why it's all relevant, you know, in our life and can help us change ourselves and change the world. Uh, there's a great um, uh, interview with Reverend Ava Park from the Goddess Temple of Orange County where she talks about her 20-minute daily empowerment. Um, Charlotte Cressy came on and talked about the foremother of ecofeminism, whose name is Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Uh, there were sacred plant initiations with Carol Guyette. Uh, Andrew uh, uh, Goff called in from the U.K. and talked about the goddess who fell to earth and the history of the hive. Uh, all sorts of stuff on the Akashic Record, uh, sacred uh, transitioning, uh, both personally and culturally, indigenous wisdom from an Aleutian elder, Larry McCulloch. So there's a lot of good stuff that's um, 
uh, been in the archives recently. And you know what? Or go back, uh, go back a couple years. You know what? All of this stuff is still so very relevant. Uh, there have been so many incredible uh, guests on the show over the years. Dig into the archives and just. Um, you know, avail yourself, uh, shower yourself with all the wisdom of these wonderful guests who have been here each week. And you know what? If you like what you're listening to, um, I'm going to put my PBS hat on here, so to speak. Um, I hope you will show your appreciation and help me pay uh, to keep the show on the air because I do pay for the airtime to bring you these guests each week. And if you could help me uh, and support the show... Uh, because remember, what you nurture and what you support, it thrives, and what you neglect, it withers. You know, that is just the way of the world, whether we're talking about relationships or groups or radio shows or, or um, you know, people out there that are trying to make a difference, they need to be supported. They need to know that... Um, um, you know, you value them. So if you can, uh, please go to my website, karentate.com, and um, go to the Goddess Store page and scroll all the way down to the bottom. And the very last PayPal button there will allow you to make a donation of any amount. Uh, you can also help out by buying some of my books uh, from me rather than Amazon. Uh, I also um, sell some very beautiful um, Goddess uh, cards that you can use for all occasions, and uh, they're they're um, they're card cards with, that are made out of uh, photography pictures of goddesses from sacred sites or uh, actual sacred sites um, that can be used, um, you know, for you know different uh, you know needs during the year, you know, birthdays, holidays, things like that. You know, if if you want to send someone something. Um, that uh, you know that speaks of goddess or speaks of her sacred sites uh you can use those cards and there's free stuff there on the goddess store page as well um there are meditations you can download and check out some of the other pages while you're there as well there are lots of interesting articles uh there are links there to my youtube channel uh where we have videotaped some of my talks or classes or workshops um, so, you know, check it out. There's a lot of good stuff there. You can you can learn a lot just by availing yourself uh of the of the information that's there on the website. So, um that about does it for tonight. I wanna thank you for um you know, for your listener loyalty. Uh you are the guests in my tank. Uh I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. It means so much to me that uh, so many of you have been tuning in week in and week out, year in and year out. So uh, let me just close tonight's show with um, maybe some beautiful music by Abigail Spinner McBride. Uh, just two more minutes here uh, as uh, you hear her uh, in her cut called The Sacred Way. Good night, dear listeners. Have a wonderful, wonderful uh, summer, and I will be back week after next. <laughs> 